Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Raptors Rapcast weekly podcast thing. Everything is kind of nebulous in the offseason. This week it's replacing the pull-up tray podcast. Trey and I are in a fight to the death. We've got beef. So um, we're talking about coaches today. And the reason why I wanted to talk about coaches is obviously the Raptors fired Nick Nurse and they are in the search for a coach. The people I'll be talking to today are not insiders who will give us the the little rumor that they'll fashion into a tip, that they'll refashion into a source or anything like that. It's tough to tell what's going on out there. We have a coach in Evan Gualberto, a fantastic coach. He coaches at a very good high school in the States, very good level of basketball. He also is somebody who kind of changed the highlight clip game around the NBA. His YouTube channel was very popular for cutting together aspects of defenders, finishers, shooters that typically weren't seen before. The specificity is what made it popular and his work and the descriptions adjointed to them. Also very good. So so good that the NBA started copying it. Regardless, that YouTube channel also used to feature a podcast called Bouncing Around that Evan and I did together, which was, I still think to this day, the most in-depth weekly look at, um, with film, the NBA, although it is defunct now. Didn't have the juice. Secondly, Caitlin Cooper, who has done a lot of research on coaches in the past because the Pacers were in the same predicament that the Raptors were in. They had a head coach who was apparently not really jiving with players, had a tough time hanging in. They had to look for a new guy. She was like, hey, I'll look at a bunch of coaches. And also, for my money, the best writer covering the NBA, especially about the ongoings on the court, which makes her a really good person to talk to about coaching because very few beat writers can recognize what a coach is doing, what players are doing, and where that delineates. These are the guests. Caitlin Cooper, Evan Gualberto. Caitlin, we will start with you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I've told both of you privately, but I guess I'll say it publicly that I still look very fondly at the bouncing around episode that I was on. And that's one of my favorite podcasts I've recorded. So that's not a flex for me to say that I've recorded a lot of podcasts, but I have. It's more just me elevating the two of you and saying that that was a great show. I miss it. I wish it was still up and running. Yeah, we we broke our brains doing that. <laughs> we burned ourselves out like crazy. Evan, how are you doing? No longer suffering from the burnout adjacent to me, but perhaps elsewhere. Can't complain. Um, for what it's worth, still the highest rated bouncing around episode. Most views, most likes, likely most retweeted clip. So great. That's right. Okay. We're here to talk about coaches. The first thing I want to know from each of your point of view is that coaching is a nebulous thing. I often lean back and say, and I know Evan dislikes this. But I say coaching isn't as, as, isn't as important at the NBA level as many people make it out to be. It's also more important than some people think it is. I want to know what you look for. You start watching a team and you want to understand the coach's relationship with them to their on-court play. First thing you start looking for and what makes you think that a coach is doing well. We'll start with you, Evan. Oh. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um. Just a general sense of, I guess, um, well, if you're just watching on court, like, is there a level of, like, freedom 
flow and like I guess general consistency to what they're trying to do. Um, you know, obviously it's easier at <clears throat> lower levels, but at the NBA level where um, most teams are playing a certain way, there there are a requisite number of things that are set specifically that you're looking at. Are they doing anything unique? So, you know, with the Raptors, say, trying to win on the margins, um, doing this, that, and third. Um, no NBA team, like, really presses anymore, but zones are more prevalent now than I think they've ever been. Maybe, I don't know, somebody fact-check me on that. But are, are they doing something unique, and are they trying to maximize their players some? I, well, I have more thoughts about that later. Um, but are they doing anything inherently unique is I think the thing that I look for first, I guess. So an example would be that Monty Williams willingness to incorporate the Spain pick and roll more often than a lot of other teams and the crispness with which Chris Paul orchestrated Devin Booker orchestrated and all the role players kind of bought in, be in the spot, screen off ball, occupy the weak side, make sure everybody buys in was like, a unique thing among the NBA for Monty Williams to get out of those guys, I think. Would that be a good example of that? Yes. And the fact that he was, I guess, relentless with calling that, disguising that. Uh, I think we did a bouncing around once upon a time about like the hundred different ways they get into it. Um, but it's just, we have the players to make, to have this play be a lethal play, regardless of how you want to defend it. We're just going to disguise it, X, Y, and Z. Um, Eric Spolstra with the press, or excuse me, with the with the zone um, from time to time, press into a zone, which, you know, it's not necessarily something that troubles most NBA teams because the ball handling is terrific, obviously, but it eats clock, right? And so you get teams pushing deeper and deeper into the shot clock, and it's disruptive in that sense, so. Stuff like that. So creating new margins for the team to win at that maybe were unseen before, I think is like a, a really good way of viewing it. Caitlin, same thing I asked Evan. When you start observing a coach, what do you look for? And what kind of jumps out as good to you? Well, number one, are you coaching the team you have? Or are you coaching the team you want? Um, the coach who is coaching the Pacers and has close relationships to the coach who was just coaching the Raptors. He was coaching the team that he wanted, not the team that he had. Um, so that's number one. Number two, I would emphasize to anybody that X's and O's matter for a coach, but if you're not getting buy-in, doesn't really matter. Number three, when I'm evaluating, like if, if a play works, there's about three things that I look for. Number one, who will this play be run for? How's it going to work against multiple defensive coverages and then the timing and the spacing and the execution of it. So like when I was on the show the last time and we talked about that chin play for Wara and how it created the single side tag, when I was preparing for this podcast, I rewatched some Raptors plays. The Raptors run that exact same play. The difference being is when TJ McConnell would make the chin cut and give it to Wara, he would cut strong side to create that shake action on the backside. When the Raptors run it and Scotty's the person setting the back screen into the ball screen and Fred cuts, he goes to the weak side. So you're not getting that same shake action. You're not getting that same automatic play that the Pacers are getting every time. So those little tiny details can make a big difference in how effective a play is. So that's kind of the stuff that I tend to look and evaluate. 
And so when we talk about coaching, when you, everybody kind of decided I'm, you know, a culprit of this because I told it to the people who listen to the podcast that I didn't think the Raptors were buying in. When I saw that, what I look for for buy-in is the lack of compete on defense and not in the kind of, you know, like nebulous sense, but you can tell guys aren't getting to spots. A, a lot of times on in teams, you can tell a team is really prepared to defend and really, you know, committing to the scheme, especially in this day and age, by how they get to the nail and how they rotate to the middle, especially. There's a lot of rotations out to the, you know, above the break and the corner where, you know, we rightfully pay attention to like chopping feet, slowing down drives, but getting to the middle of the court to make the pickup point 14, 12 feet instead of eight to six feet, I think is what I look for a lot on the defensive end. And then offensively, it is how much standing around you do on offense. And is that because of not being involved in a play, a lack of oversight from the coach, or are you, as you said, doing things that other teams do and just performing them at a worse rate? Evan, we'll go back to you. What do you look for for buy-in? And I know you've seen a few Raptors games this year, but if you have any insights as to what you'd like to see from the team going forward, feel free to throw them in. So, I mean, a good coach to me, specifically talking about the buy-in stuff, is like, you're you're not the star you're never the star um but you we're have talking to have... about the raptors by the way <laughs> <laughs> um so i think it has to be like you have to have they were talking about the coach in question was talking about morgan wooten and how uh wooten was the smartest guy in the room but he never acted like it and so that's what i think you kind of have to, I think that's the thing with the greatest coaches in the league is that they are, there's a sense of calm steadiness to them, a sense of like Zen, I guess, you know, but they're not, they're not the story and they shouldn't be the story. And as much as you want to make it about them, like they're going to not necessarily deflect, but you know, um, redirect you because at the end of the day, it's your job to do everything you can to get the players you, to Caitlin's point, like you have to coach the team that you have and you have to adapt to them. Even if you are used to playing a certain style, a certain system, if you can't change, if you don't have the adaptability, then like you're not really that good as a coach. And to your earlier point, the thing that I never, that I wasn't the biggest fan of during bouncing around, like, you know, I, I get it more and more now. It's like at the at the NBA level, like the X's and O's stuff, debatable, right? Like who's the best X's and O's guy? It there's no way to know because like you can't have them all take a test. It's about what can they put out there, how willing are their guys to execute like what you guys have said, to execute what you have been saying. So like for me, the biggest thing in coaching is like it's not about what like I'm telling you it just because I taught it doesn't mean you learned it just because like, I think we're going to be the best defensive team because we're going to push everything down the sideline or whatever. If it doesn't work for us, it doesn't work for us. And either you didn't teach it well enough, you don't have enough buy-in or you don't have the guys. And so, but if you're not adaptable to that, and if you're not willing to change 
who you are to who you have, then, you know, are you really successful? Are you even a good coach at that point? Not to, I don't, I don't know, know if I answered your, yeah, I don't yeah. know if I answered your question at all. This allows for a segue and we'll get to you right away, Caitlin. But I've said on the podcast before, made the reference to Liverpool and the Raptors and said, this is what Evan told me about. I think it'd be cool to just take the opportunity here to kind of expand on what you mean. Because as you said, smartest guy in the room, buy-in, all these types of things, X's and O's. The Raptors per second spectrum have been top five in ATO point per possession two years running now. Nick Nurse has been fire with the pen on you know the, the whiteboard, as it were. And yet the team still underperforms vastly at a bunch of different levels. Tell me about the Liverpool comp. I'd like to hear it. Okay, so if you, like, whether or not you're familiar, Liverpool plays um, heavy metal football, right? They, they, they are pressing, pressing, pressing. It's high intensity. They don't want possession of the ball. Um, so for basketball, there's not really a one-to-one for, you know, mm-hmm. basketball to soccer slash football. But it's, you are maximizing every single thing you have, and it requires 100% effort every single second. I think, or that's my interpretation of it. And um, you were able to, um, I, I can't remember how you phrased it when you messaged me back. And it's like, but you're winning on, you're winning on the margins while trying to maximize everything you have. Even if you're not the most talented team, you are just, you're going to out effort, I guess I would say. Um but it comes at a price. So again, if you're not a soccer slash football fan, Liverpool, you know, at the top of the top or like fighting for the top for a number of years. And then after a certain point, um, injuries rack up and it's not necessarily that, that they lack buy-in now. It's just that the guys who were able to give 200% once upon a time, are only giving are only capable now of giving 80 60 it's it's diminishing returns at that point and so like i don't know if i'm getting at what you want me to get at necessarily but it's similar to that in that way i think well that's that was the most intriguing aspect of it was that spiritually everybody is kind of who listens to this podcast no doubt and the league wide people know that the raptors play like the tryhard brand of basketball and they were pursuing the possession battle. They were running the most miles. They were like, they just led in everything, every effort thing. And this was something that Nick Nurse and the organization preached openly, public knowledge. This was also true of Liverpool as well. As they reached the highest highs under Jurgen Klopp, they also ran way more miles. This accumulated over time, and you just can't play heavy metal foot heavy metal football or heavy metal basketball all the time and and i think that's probably the the thing that happened with the raptors more than anything and then that wear and tear kind of allows for fraying of the interpersonal stuff as well and you have to be egoless to kind of repair fray a lot of the time that's what it takes and there's a lot of ego in basketball it's very hard to drop that Caitlin, buy-in, where do you stand on it? What do you look for? You've seen teams lose it in the past a little bit. 
Yeah, just, just a smidge. Um, yeah, on the defensive end, I think number one is if, if Fred gets beat at the point of attack and that's all it takes for an opposing team to score, I think that's pretty indicative of where the buy-in is at. The listeners um, are going to like that point. <laughs> I'll tell you that. Well, and it's not even me just picking on Fred. It's literally the schematics of the defense. If that is all it is taking, like I rewatched the game they played against the Lakers for my own mailbag purposes because I wanted to watch what OG was doing defending Anthony Davis. If you're putting him on Anthony Davis and Fred is guarding the point of attack and Pirtle is off roaming and you're not going to switch those ball screens because they want to leave OG on the center and all it takes is for Fred to get beat off the dribble, that's telling me that you're not on the same page. Now, I do know that the defense did improve pretty vastly after the trade deadline, which probably speaks to what both of you are saying. It was a less aggressive scheme. When you have a center out there, you're not having to pull in off the corners as much. I looked at their corner three frequency. They went from giving up the most to being about, like, what, 20th, I think? So they weren't having to be as aggressive helping off. Like, it did get better, but maybe they just didn't have as much buy-in and performing that hyper aggressive of a scheme anymore that's perhaps part of it another thing just nebulously speaking that i watch to see if teams are buying in and what they're doing defensively is if the person at the point of attack is having to look over their shoulder to see where the screen is coming from or if a screen is coming that's telling me that there's not communication going on and you're not really on the same page you shouldn't have to be looking to see if you're going to get slammed by a pick so that's just like one little basketball thing that nitty-gritty thing that I look for and watch. Did you ever see that with the Raptors? I saw it with the Pacers this year, and yes, I, I have seen it with the Raptors when I was watching film back uh, last night and the day before that. I'm Just as we kind of – there's a close to – I think now I say – I get pushback on this because people say it can't be 6'9 if Fred is out there, that kind of stuff. I get that, but I also think the 6'9 ideal just wasn't ever tenable – I've never been a fan of it. They found the success that they did. That's fine. I've never been a fan of it. I think that Jakob Pertl signaled the end of it. I think that Nick Nurse being fired signals, at least to some degree, the end of it. Those two things happening within the span of three, four months. Just as we sit here, I'm curious what you guys think of the few-year kind of flirtation the Raptors did with trying to play that that vision six, nine basketball at the end of it all. And we'll, we'll start with you, Caitlin. I mean, I think that it became a little bit too dogmatic. Um, if you're not willing to adjust from that. And the, and the fact of the matter is, is they didn't really have a way to adjust from it. They had versatile players, but not really a way to execute versatile schemes. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't do what they're doing right now in a more relaxed form. There was no way to taper that back or to then shift it back up. If so, I think it had an expiration date. I mean, I think you and I talked about that before the season started. I think you were kind of, I think you used Dune to compare this to, which I've never read Dune, but I think you used the second Dune book. The trailer came out today for Dune Part 2, by the way, for all the, the little Dune heads. I don't, what, what what do you call fans of Dune? Duners? I don't know. You probably are the number one fan. You should know. I do like it. I do like it a lot. Anyway, go. I I, I took us on. Anyways, I think you used the second Dune book and whatever the premise of that is, because I have not read that series to explain why you were pretty convinced that this was going to have an expiration date. I owe you a book. You owe me a book. We'll leave it at that. Evan, thoughts on Vision 6-9? Whew, I think I can't remember who the prospect was when you had me on to talk about draft stuff. I said I pleaded. Um, Jalen Williams. I told you. Was that who it was? I think it, I think it might have been Jim. Yeah. Oh, or um, shoot. 
um, I'm blanking right now, but he played for, um, um, he played in the French league. We talked about three guys. So mm. it's, it's one or the other. Um, but I, the conceit of me talking to you about that isn't the fact that I thought they were going to draft those guys. It was a way for me to talk about me hoping their scheme would change. And I talked a lot in that about the hope that if you get this guy, then maybe, maybe you'll play a little more drop and you get a little, little more conservative because like what you're doing right now is, and I think that was right on the heels of um, the Liverpool comparison is that you're going to wear the guys out. You don't have a Caitlin's point. Um, like you have versatile players, right? But there's not anything really you're, do, not to say there's nothing you're doing that's all that different, but there is there is a hard cap on what you can do, and I th- I think we saw that. So I don't know. Um, it, it's a, made for a cool. Are there shirts? Were there shirts? Yeah, there's something. Sure, I'm if, sure. If it's sold shirts, then that's all. It, you know? <laughs> shirt salesman. I I am a I'm a two time well, one time shirt salesman, a two time shirt sales collaborator collaborator i would say um you are wearing the fruits of the second attempt i'm not and that's my mistake by the way okay so here's the thing i really really want to talk about and this is this is where i would really really appreciate everybody's input i want us all to collaborate on this thing coaching to the roster you have let's pretend the raptors they bring everybody back they're a luxury tax team. Scotty, Pascal, Fred, OG, Pirtle. That's your starting five. That's a, you look at that front court, you say, yeesh, not a lot of shooting there. When I asked Nick about that, he told me, no, they're actually good at shooting. We'll put that aside. You have Gary Trent Jr., Precious Achua, Chris Boucher coming off the bench. Otto Porter Jr. has located his toe and will likely be back in tow. And... <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> we, we have some other people chipping in. How do you want this team to play? If you were in the coach's ear and you get, yeah, you should play like this. You're the shadow GM. You get to say, this is how it's supposed to be. You got to play these guys. What are some of the overarching themes, arching themes? I don't know how to say that. What are you looking for? Caitlin, I'm going to start with you and then I'm going to steal your answers later. Well, this is good because this is what I prepared for. This is what I anticipated being asked, so I'm ready. Um, am I allowed to ask Evan a question in my answer? Anything goes. Okay, so Evan, if I tell you that a team is running zipper, elbow, split for Scotty, can you envision that in your head? Yeah. Okay, so we have Scotty at the elbow coming off and then another guard's coming off the zipper screen. Let's pretend Fred has the ball. Where are you placing the other four starters in that action to maximize Scotty Barnes as a playmaker at the elbow? If you have two guards running split, and I'll just add a little bit more to the action to make it better. So if you have two guards running split above Scotty at the elbow, if, and you get nothing out of the split action. So the one guard's going to circle out and go off an exit screen in the ball side corner. And the other guard's going to come off a handoff from Scotty to run pick and roll with empty, just one guy in the opposite weak side corner for shake action. Can you envision that? Yes and no. Okay, so there's um, an exit screen on the ball side and just one guy dotting the opposite corner and shaking up. Okay, okay, then yes. Okay, so where are you putting the other four people to make this feasible? 
Okay. Um, so, so we're saying Jakob is out there, right? Yes. So let's do starting five. Starting five. Jakob, in my opinion, has to be the exit screener. You don't have a okay. choice. Okay. Okay. Jakob, OG, Scotty, Pascal, Fred. So where? So so we're assuming now Fred is in the strong side corner. I'd put OG in the opposite weak side corner so he can shake up. Okay. Um, Fred Yock. Oh man, I. Oof. It's a testament to the Raptors' relentlessness that I can only imagine that them in the flex alignment right now. Um, yeah, I mean, you can run stuff out of that, but. Okay. So the reason I brought this up is because it's pretty much impossible to place those other four people. I would put Jakob as the exit screener. I would run Fred off the exit screen. I'd have Pascal. You can run the DHO with Scotty. Cause I like their two man game a little bit. And I'd put OG in the opposite and let him shake up. That's not ideal. Like that's not great machinations. But the reason I bring this up is this is a play that Rick Carlisle ran for Sabonis last year. So if you're thinking that you could do some of the Scotty Sabonis type things, that's a good play. You're getting, you know, weak side tag. You're getting lots of options for Scotty to make plays out of. I think Scotty's the most like likely player to be here the longest that you absolutely have to hit on. Like if you're the coach sitting in on an interview, you better be able to sell the way that you're using and developing Scotty Barnes. So I just am not sure that the other four people in that starting lineup, they're kind of a heterogeneous mixture in terms of, I like certain parts of them together. Like I like how Scotty can make plays for OG and throw passes to him under the rim. I like the idea of Scotty and Pascal running empty side pick and roll. Fred and Pirtle running pick and roll changed the offense to me over the back end of the season and made it run more fluidly. Do I like any of the other parts around any of those things? Not really. So it kind of feels a bit purgatorial to me. Like, I understand why you might need to bring this back and run it, but it feels like it's a step to the next step. Like, we have to bring these guys back and rebuild their value so that we can perhaps move them somewhere else so that we can get to the actual future, which is Scotty Barnes and whatever you're rebuilding with. So the new coach needs to be able to tell me what you're doing with Scotty Barnes. This this is the... So you hit on, like, everything right there. This is what I've been thinking about, worrying about, actually, I would say, is... Um, I thought that Pascal and Scotty was tenable, defended the two, the two of them together for a year when it seemed like the Raptors were trying to make the center position more of an offensive position for them rather than a defensive position for them. Um, that's with shooting. And I thought if your center can shoot, Pascal and Scotty become tenable. You brought up the exact thing that the exact thing that I'm worried about. Pascal, Scotty, Jakob, independently, all bring a ton of value. Pascal the most. Right now, Jakob the second most, Scotty the third most, but still like an overwhelmingly positive player this year with a bunch of intriguing attributes going forward, perhaps a star. How you work around that limitation of shooting, there are two options. Pascal finally goes north of 36% on his above-the-break threes, takes the inflow shots that come to him, side top, it comes to him, he has to shoot it. Teams have to believe it, it'll go in at a moderate rate, and then that will, A, juice his numbers, 
more points per possession on the offense, and will create more pump and go options for him as he's a great passer. If that doesn't happen, it's not tenable. Because Fred can return to form as a shooter. OG can return to form as a shooter. Well, he had a pretty good year shooting because of how hot he was at the end. But if nobody, because Jakob's not taking that step, Scotty probably isn't taking that step. How the hell does Pascal carry the weight of that, that front court shooting? Because he's the guy who's going to be asked to. I have a video with Yahoo Sports coming out, I guess, probably in a few minutes from when this records talking about this. But that's the thing, right? How do you navigate in this day and age that? Do they overload on offensive rebounding and say Scotty and Jakob will just like make it work that way? Do they run all the flex stuff out of the elbow alignment with either Scotty or Jakob or, or out horns flex with Scotty or Jakob as the trigger man and just hope that Fred is still one of the best guard screeners and that they can get like little dink and dunk points all game. How do they actually make this work? Evan, how do they make it work? Tell us. <laughs> Man. Um, yeah, I was trying to think about it. Just, I mean, even, even if you're running stuff with Jakob at a delay, right? It's not, at the end of the day, like who's who's really gonna care? Defenses are gonna. The defense play. is shrinking, all the yeah. time, not so expanding. So it doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, I think, I guess, to a certain extent, what they were and what they could be in this Vision Six Nine thing was like was maximized. Um, in the sense that you're trying to win the offensive rebounding margin. Cause that's the only advantage that, you know, if, if you don't have it defensively, like where, where, where can you win? Um, can't think right now of like what they're, um, where they ranked in terms of like turnovers and, um, all that. But like, I, I, at the end of the day, I don't, I don't think it matters because like the lack of spacing, you know, continues to be glaring. So unless somebody makes a catas like a leap, on top of a leap, on top of a leap, and everyone else goes up, then I don't, I don't really know where you can go. That's I, I have an idea. Okay, Caitlin, you've got the job. Actually, this is this is what I've been doing. I've been interviewing the whole time. Tell me, oh, okay. tell me how you build around Scotty while also having very little shooting on the floor. I mean, you have to purposely incorporate plays that are going to be run for Scotty, which I don't think there was a lot happening in that no. regard last year. It was a lot of expecting him to find his own usage. But aside from that, they ranked 24th in the league in drives per game. That can't be the case. That has to go up with this group of players. So then it becomes, how can we increase the number of drives? Because what you just said is pretty accurate. People are going to try to shrink the floor. So how can you combat teams shrinking the floor with this group of players. So envision for yourself. Let's go. <laughs> Fred and Jakob running middle pick and roll, which the offense tilted a lot more towards pick and roll than what was the case at the beginning of the season. Mm -hmm. If I have OG and Scotty and Pascal dotting around that and you're running it toward the two-man side, see what I'm doing here? Yeah. <laughs> or running it toward the two-man side, I think you have to use continuous corner cut, corner drift, high lift. So you're moving them around the pick and roll. Like if they're the central axle, you're constantly turning the court. That way when the teams go to tag on Jakob and you have to spring back out, those tags are distorted. 
And then I would purposely, you're asking, do you go in all in on offensive rebounding? That's kind of what the Raptors were already doing, right? They were trying to reverse engineer that. They're spacing guys below the break, which a lot of NBA teams are doing now. You see more NBA teams putting two people below the break because of the war for the nail. We're trying to clear out nail space. I would do the opposite of that. I would space guys off of the corner. I would have Pascal. I would have Scotty off of the corner, above the break. That way, when you're doing this action with the corner cut, corner drift, high lift, and they catch it, and it's a one-pass-away drive, you can attack baseline or you could attack middle. When you dot somebody deep into the corner, which is what the Raptors were doing, you kind of take away your aspect to be able to attack baseline. So you want to be able to get as many multiple drives out of this group as you can. So I think that the new coach is going to have to be meticulous in what type of spacing you're using and where guys are stationed when that roll happens. I think you can still run Fred and Jakob pick and roll. Just got to be a little bit more intuitive with the type of continuous spacing you're using around them. So basically you'd envision like when Fred dribbles off the pick, OG would be lifting high lift clear behind the basketball. And then you'd have Pascal lifting up above the corner of the break. That way when you throw the ball behind the break and those tags are distorted, he can attack middle and he can attack baseline. That's so, what I would do. So my question, very good idea, by the way. We see a lot of the best offenses thrive because they have a lot of players three through six who are quick. They won't allow the defense to catch up. The Raptors, if I had to guess, among the NBA, allowed the most catch-ups. You held the ball and you reset everything. Everything you worked for in the first seven, eight seconds of your actions went to went to hell. It because the ball ended up in Pascal, Scotty, OG's hands. Those guys were the biggest culprits in my opinion. And it came to rest. What is your confidence rate that all those guys can kind of sand off those warts from their game and make everything fluid? Like get into stuff immediately. I mean I would defer to Evan and teaching points on that. I think that some teams really drill that and teach a 0.5 second mentality. Like this is kind of some of the issues the New York Knicks have had, right? In the past where you can kind of look and see that Julius Randle's a five second player, not a 0.5 second player where you want him to make quicker decisions where, you know, if Jalen Brunson gets blitzed and Julius Randle catches it on the break, you initially attack out of that. You're putting somebody into a four on three situation. Randle doesn't always do that. I don't know what the Knicks teaching points are on that. So I'd ask Evan, when you're coaching players, do you feel like you can speed up that processing mentality to get people to make those types of quicker decisions? I think it's about, uh, to an extent, right? But I mean, I work with players who are on a much on a much lower level. So it's like, you're trying to, I'm trying to maximize these players and see like, what's their processing speed like? What can we get it up to? Whereas like, you know, in the league, there's a certain guys are after a certain point who they are. You're dealing um, with adaptable brains. Right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you it's it still can be a point of emphasis. So if, you know, to your much earlier point, Caitlin, of um, you know, you have to um your style has to be catered to the players you have and not the players you want and and, and so on and so forth. It's you know if the processing speed is there for scotty which i think it is right whatever style you want to play i think he's very he's he can be very adaptable but i i think you just have to decide like this is how we have to play 
And if you don't fit this particular style and like from um, a front office standpoint, it's just like, it's Scotty is the North star, like um, in terms of the way you play, because if it can't be, if you don't fit with him similar to like, obviously I'm not comparing the two, but like LeBron, everybody knows what the perfect or the preferred roster construction is or at least a preferred lineup construction of like you have a big who can defend the rim and then you have shooters and creators all around him right you play that specific style because he um you maximize the way he plays and you know if like as much as I want to say, like, yes, a coach can get the most out of their player if the player has enough buy-in and the coach has earned the trust of the player to go that way. I really don't, at the NBA level, I don't necessarily know if, like, you can turn, I mean, you definitely can't turn a Julius Randle, I, I don't want to say definitely can't, but chances are Julius Randle can only become a um, three-second instead of a 0.5 second at this point in his career. So I don't know. This brings up, I think that's, we're getting as close to, like this is all speculation. This is all, we're kind of like just casting into the future. We hope this happens. None of this can we say with certainty. And we certainly can't certainly say that the Raptors will enact all this stuff. The players will. The last thing I want to ask you about is coaching in the NBA. As far as I can tell, Media has a major impact on how coaches are perceived. If you have in your market a lot of guys, women, whoever, that are paying attention to what is happening on the court and can accurately portray and tell why these set actions work, I think that that coach is a lot more likely to be seen as kind of like a set action genius, regardless of the actual points per possession, for example. You also have people who pay a lot of attention to rotations. That's the one I want to hammer in on. Rotations, calling the right, like putting the right five-man lineups out there. What percentage, it doesn't have to answer with your actual answer. The percentage doesn't matter that much. But what type of importance do you think like making the right call on five-man lineups plays? And I know, especially with like Isaiah Jackson, you've talked about this before, Caitlin. I've talked about this with regard to Isaiah Jackson. I I'm pretty sure if if I remember correctly, like the having having the right set of guys out there to maximize him. You've certainly talked about it, um, maybe much to your chagrin in regards to Miles Turner and Demonis Sabonis. So um, maybe we'll use that as I the have my forever beat. I mean, I probably did talk about Isaiah Jackson being used as a roamer and them not really wanting to play him with Miles Turner. Maybe that's what you're referring to. Um maybe. I don't know. You did do a promotional read for me once, which was very nice. That's true. <laughs> um, but as rotations, um, I mean, I think from the Raptors standpoint, what's kind of interesting is if you look at the three games they played against the Pacers this year, I kind of saw every pitfall and every version of the Raptors. So when I looked back at our text conversations in preparation for this, the ones that we publish, not our actual text right. conversations, <laughs> um, the first game, Pascal and, and Fred were not available. So I kind of saw the future of the OG Scotty version. And the second game, 
Miles was playing way off of Scotty Barnes. So we kind of got a peek of, you know, Scotty being a conduit of offenses and as a hub. And both of us, I asked you, I'm like, how, how often has he done that? Because it wasn't very effective. Like I felt like Scotty was making good screening decisions, making good passing reads had a crab dribble. The Pacers ended up winning that game because the bench was horrific. Like the Pacers outscored them in like 45 bench points. And then in the last game, they were playing more pick and roll and the Pacers like kind of proved that like, Hey, this is a major indictment of you. Cause we turned the ball over a million times. You got a million offensive rebounds and you still lost because we shot the ball better than you did. Like, so we kind of saw all three versions. So I guess point being is from the Raptors perspective in a rotation situation, I think that there probably needed to be more willingness to be like, Hey, we're going to probably lose these bench minutes, but we need to show that we have trust in these bench players because that was never coming into play. Like there was a game where the Pacers played the Cavs this year, just for instance, and they had a pretty significant lead, almost piddled the whole thing away with the bench out there in the fourth quarter. They finally make substitutions and the Pacers still had like a two point lead. They ended up losing the game. So of course everybody looks at Rick Carlisle and is like, well, you let that bench group out there way too long. And that's why the lead went away. And he answered the question. And I think a very wise way and said, yeah, but if we didn't leave that group out there, they wouldn't know that I trust them. And I do. So I was going to let them play through that. I think there needed to be more of that from Nick Nurse. Not a lot of that going around from Nick Nurse. Um, it did get better after the All-Star break, to be honest. But that was after three years of really hard rotation minutes for about six guys. And a few of them went from being in these insane minutes to being injured and then right back up to the insane minutes again and just go, 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 go. The Liverpool comparison lives on. Evan, rotations, thoughts? Um, one of the things that I thought about immediately when you were when you texted me with this, you know, that this is what we were going to talk about, is like the willingness to experiment, I guess, is try different things because the point of being unless you are committed to being a lottery team is to succeed in the the point is to succeed in the playoffs. And I think that's kind of what you see a lot of the time with like the teams that are perennially, perennially like in the title chase or have been in the past, like, you know, the, the Spurs for the longest time with the sitting Tim Duncan DNP old, classic stuff um but they you know their rotation was like built in i think about i constantly reference the 2010 suns to my players because they're a team that didn't end up making the uh the finals but everybody talks everybody on that team still talks fondly about that team and how the uh off-court chemistry translated to on-court chemistry which they were playing 10 men rotations in the playoffs and, you know, were winning games that way because uh, I think it was Alvin Gendry at the time had ultimate trust in that, in that bench lineup. And that bench lineup was rocking it against the Lakers in the Western conference finals, you know, um, playing heavy minutes. And so I think the trust, and you know, everything, Everything in coaching is about buy-in, right? Um, everything in coaching is about, are you willing to listen to me? Because I'm willing to listen to you. And that's how most 
coaches have been successful. Um, you can get to a certain, you can reach a certain level by saying like, we're going to do this my way and my way is going to win. But once you hit that wall, there's, you know, there's not a lot you can do after that. And that's kind of what I think happened with Nick Nurse. Um, so the deeper your rotation, it's not necessarily about even winning the games. If you, if you can guarantee, I guess, that you can make the playoffs while experimenting a bunch, like, that's always great. But the regular season, to me, if you're a playoff team, is about finding answers to questions in um, low leverage situations so that when things get really tough, we've done this. We've played with X, um, the, I, th- I can't remember what it was, but the, I remember seeing the Cavs, um, the 20, when did they win? 2015, 2016. Um, they were gearing up to face the Warriors. And so they would experiment, Tyloo would experiment with the scheme and change up the way they played their defense. Um, not necessarily nightly, but in preparation for the Warriors. So they would try all these different things, knowing that they were, if they were to win at all, they would have to go through um, what was eventually like the record setting 73 and 9 Warriors, right? So you have to be willing to experiment with your tactics i guess to a certain extent and to do that you have to have the trust of the players um but you show them that trust back by having a deeper rotation i think the way i look at it is that you can sort nba.com by five-man lineups you're going to find some winners and those are winners who win in the short term and then in the long term you're going to find a lot of groups that have won in the short term but may not actually win over the long term. And a coach's job is to find those out, ideally, before the fan does. Because everyone has access to this, those types of stats. Like, it's not like, how many advantaged closeouts does a team get? You know, these proprietary stats. This is NBA.com. This is really easy stuff to understand. Who wins minutes? Who's out there? A coach has to be able to, a coaching staff has to be able to figure out when like the winning point stops and exactly where that one wins. And I think a lot of people might look at it and just say, just play the guys who win. And there is an essence of truth in that. But as you said, it's complex to win basketball games. And now more complex than ever. Benches are more important than ever. I think that the Suns are a really good example of that, right? They are... Chris Paul, Devin Booker, Kevin Durant. That is just an insane glut of talent, winning pedigree, all this kind of stuff, and a really great coach to boot. But as the, you know, the NBA gets deeper, parity increases, the bench becomes way more important. And there's more talent on benches now than ever. So if you lose that battle every time you walk out there, which is what happened to the Raptors a lot this season, you lose a lot of games. And if you want to be the team that... Like the Suns didn't lose with KD in the lineup for the first however many games. You have to have just Hall of Famers stacked together to carry a bench that's not going to do it for you. So it's it's always in the middle, I find. Although I don't have the perfect answer. I just think like it's in the middle. The last thing I want to talk about. We're all three of us together. We enjoy talking basketball. Is there anything that you can come up with? Doesn't have to be about coaching. 
But in your mind, you're like, I'd like to talk about this while we have Samson, Caitlin, and Evan in a room. What would it be? Okay, so if we look at that game, I'll just make it Raptors-centric since I am on a Raptors you're podcast. You're great. Thank you for that. Um, if we look at that game that Scotty played against the Pacers, which I felt like was a seminal moment for him in terms of being a hub of the offense, how does you watching what happened to the Sacramento Kings and DeMontis Sabonis against the Golden State Warriors shape your vision, or how should it shape the coach's vision of how you would purpose using Scotty Barnes? Does that alter how you view him? I have an answer to this, but I certainly will defer and listen to you first. It doesn't. It's hard to win a series. It's really hard to win it against Steph Curry and Draymond Green and Kevon Looney, who plays up all the time and clay thompson and like maybe jordan Poole didn't have the best series but the the warriors are a really good team there's a lot of really good teams in the nba and i think it's starting to emulate a lot more that it's more like baseball where there's a lot of parity and you just want to open up a window and a lot of different play styles can win in the nba now i think We're, we're seeing like i know there's a lot of similarities but there's a lot of different ways to kind of make this stuff happen. I think what the Kings did is is novel to some degree, yes. But I also think it's something that you can win. Of course, they leaned on Malik Monk a lot. Of course, they like they would have liked to be able to lean on Kevin Herter more. Of course, it helps that Darren Fox is just like an out-and-out star. All that stuff is super important. But I do think that you have to build not only an offense that can win you games in the regular season, because you got to get there because it's tougher than ever to get there. This Raptors team, it would have got there in past years, but it's hard to get there now. And you got to be able to scale it up a bit in the playoffs. Yes, that's going to have to come from different places, guard, the guard position, the wing position. But if the Raptors figure out how to use Scotty like Sabonis, perhaps not not at the same degree, he's going to be able to do other things. You're going to initiate yeah. different ways. But I like it. I don't I don't I don't think it's I don't think that series was a referendum on Sabonis. So you don't think it was a referendum on handoff offense is just shot to heck. We can't run that in the playoffs anymore. Handoff. Just like I I bring this up because I think there's a pretty key reason why the Golden State Warriors were able to defend Sabonis the way they were defending Sabonis and the Sacramento Kings were not able to defend Kevon Looney and Draymond Green in that same manner. One team was having people who were hitting shots off of those handoffs and another team was not. So I also think you have to ask, that spy-type defense that the Warriors were playing is very hard to play. That is a grueling form of defense to be dropping your big back and forcing all that pressure on the other four guys to be playing maximum denial defense for 48 minutes at that pace is hard. There's not a lot of teams that can replicate that. The Pacers certainly didn't. Not in that game against Scotty Barnes, because I remember going back and forth with you and me saying they needed to stop doing that. Like everybody kept pointing out, oh, Scotty's not even looking at the rim. I'm like, yeah, but look at what shots they're getting. Mm -hmm. Now, in part, I would say for the Raptors perspective, if you go back and watch those minutes, which I did, he was like a homing device to wherever Gary Trent Jr. was. He was going to go find him, which he navigated the middle of the floor pretty well. But if you don't have like no offense to Gary, but if you don't have other Gary's or better Gary's. You're going to have problems like you're going to have to find ways to upgrade shooting in some way, shape or form for that to materialize. But, yeah, I am also of the opinion that if I was the new coach, 
Scotty and Sabonis aren't identical players. Their strengths are somewhat similar in that they're very physical players and they have very good passing vision. I would be looking at some of that and that would be part of my pitch because he has to be central to what that pitch is. So, And also like we're seeing particularly with Bam, Jokic and Sabonis and Draymond as well. If you get a talented passer, they will kind of revolutionize the way that the handoff looks. They like in the past couple of years, you've been able to glean way bigger advantages from the handoff and just like being able to be really confident in the type of leave passes or like the, you know, you just like pivot into guys, pivot out of guys. You manipulate the guy at your level. You can kind of move the guy giving chase or walk and trail, whatever. However, they even if they flatten it out and switch, there's just if you have a good guard, which the Raptors need to get. I think in this draft, which the Raptors need to look forward to in the future, you're going to be able to mine success. Now, are the Raptors going to be able to run it with Pascal and Scotty the same way that the Raptors won games just running Chicago with Jakob and Pascal and saying, if you put a small guy on Pascal and you even think about guarding this action, it's a dive to the rim and either Jakob or, you know, Scotty can make that pass or he draws a tag, whatever. And then it's a quick shot to the corner. Maybe it's Fred, maybe it's OG, whatever. Like there's room for them to do that, but they do need more shooting on the floor. But the lack of shooting isn't an indictment on Scotty or handoff offense. I think I hope that, I hope that answer. So you're also of the opinion that there's actually a such thing as a create or a advantage assist with handoffs that you can't just sub anybody in there to do that exact same role, that there is a such thing as lateral adjustments and pitch aheads and turn screens within that, as well as, you know, um, yeah, Sabonis just being able to drop the ball off because he trusts his screening so much, being able to punish an under, force an over, bringing the ball lower. There's actual skill involved there, you would say? One might say. That that okay. was something that was something when I was, you know, creating like the hierarchy of advantage assists. I left out because I didn't want to go through the work of like when I did all of Scotty's advantage assists and I made reference to Draymond's and Jason Tatum's and cataloged some of theirs so you could see the percentages as reference points. Um, Draymond's weren't counted like that either. It's um, Draymond's passes, if they were like passes that somebody could make, that's what I counted. But I wanted to make it about passing, not about screening. Because if you get into the screening thing, oh my God, you're there till the cows come home. And I didn't want to do that because I watched every pass and I was making it about passing. Regardless, you're completely correct. Evan, screening. Handoff offense, any thoughts? So I'll say this. Um, I So I work, obviously, uh, at the high school level, I work with younger players. We we have a bunch of pinch post action for everybody. And that's not because we're looking to kill teams with just pinch post action. It's, I think, you you get a sense and a feel for how players feel the game when the defense is shifted over. And it's and it's a it's a two man game and the player is running off and like a guard we can we can invert that action and have the guard um, catch at the pinch you know so they're at the elbow and you have a big coming off and then you make the read and the physicality of the guard or the big um, comes into play and how willingness they are to stick a hip out um, 
all that because once upon a time I heard uh, Greg Popovich talk about this with Manu. It's like Manu's such a when Manu first came to the Spurs, Pop was trying to rein him in, rein him in, rein him in, and then eventually he figured out that they're such they're a drastically um, improved and much more dangerous team when you just let Manu do what he does because the things he does cannot be replicated. They can be taught to a certain extent, but his feel for the game dictates what you do. So they change the way they play. There's certain sets. They still played out of certain alignments, but because Manu could do this and because Tony could hit this pass and because Tim was such a great screener um, on the wedge action, especially, or the what's known now as the Tim Duncan cut, like very few people could make that pass. The, um, I talked about this with the Chicago Sky this past season, where it's um, the zipper, when they run um, a zipper action and then right into a back door, that was all Manu. Um, and that's because like nobody else has that, nobody else had that timing and you can reverse engineer it and replicate it, but you know, it's, there are so many different things that go into so many different aspects of basketball that it's like you know you could lose your mind talking about it um and but everything is every little thing can be leveraged and to say that like a player can be replaced by another player just because they are big and they can hand the ball off is uh i i it 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 cheats the process and like you could you just watch players if you if you watch players play and then you have a specific uh, offense you're trying to run great players or dynamic players and players with great feel change it and then you're like oh how do we do that how do we get to that um that's what that's what i think most most good coaches that i've seen and interacted with try to do is they reverse engineer what their players do well and they try to put them in those situations as often as possible versus like running this this and this and it has to work because it has to work insightful in copious amounts of insights across this podcast i hope the listener enjoyed it if you're listening to this or watching this i will say if you want to support these people go to evan's youtube channel of course which will be linked go to caitlin's patreon of course which will be linked and um if they want Follow them on Twitter. They'll plug themselves. But guys, is there anything else you want to talk about before we get out of here? Caitlin, we'll start with you. Am I supposed to have takes about the Toronto Blue Jays on here? I said. Yeah. You, what, what do you think about the Blue Jays? Please. <laughs> I, I don't watch baseball. I have no takes. I've just I've heard you and Trey share some of yours, so I wait, thought wait. maybe I was supposed to weigh in on that. Okay, so based on how we talk about the Blue Jays, thumbs up or thumbs down to that team? It sounds like you think pretty decently of them. Yes. Okay, yeah. I'm glad that comes across. I, I, Chris Duarte can throw 90. So Trey said he could throw 80. So Trey can't throw 80. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the only closing thoughts I have is I will just once again use my time on the floor to say that I am a Raptors Republic subscriber. <laughs> and that I do just want to point out and emphasize that some of Samson's best pieces this year, like the piece that he did when he talked to Christian Coloco and broke down film with him, 
the amount of people that could go to that practice facility, sit there, will actually watch the film ahead of time, then sit there and talk to Christian about that film, break it down, and then be able to explain it to the masses and write it in a creative way. I'm telling the truth here as I look into the camera. I don't know another person who could have written and distilled that in that way. So I'm very happy that I've subscribed to it all year. I've learned things from Samson. I learned things from Lewis. You also get Lewis's writing, who I'm also a really big fan of. So if you have the means of to do that, I fully think that you should subscribe to Raptors Republic. And as I said the last time, Samson and I do talk every now and again, and I do think he's also a really good person, which matters to me. And you can tell that because of how uncomfortable he gets while I sit here and compliment him. So there we go. Evan? That's my pitch. I'm trusting um, I... you not to do what Caitlin just said. Oh, okay. Uh, oof, I'm also... Do it anyways. I'm also subscribed to Raptors Republic. I also think those things, but I have uh, I have this. It's uh, it's my it's my favorite. Um, word to the wise though, uh, don't if you play like I play, don't wear it. Um, playing pickup because they'll know. Everybody will know. <laughs> so um, yeah, <laughs> I am subscribed to. Um, I don't know which way, the so. To both of them, um, I follow their work. I read. I consume it constantly and consistently, even though I don't get to watching their teams, I still consume their content because I'm smarter for it. And I know several high level basketball coaches that do the same. And I was telling one of these two, I won't say who that uh, a friend of mine who like coaches um, college basketball in the, in the, in the States, I think, it's that's important to note i guess i uh, was very excited when i told them that i text with one of these writers and like they were a level of excited that i have never before experienced in our friendship so like you know take that for what it's worth well i've had just about enough of that um <laughs> listener if you want to enjoy basketball more i will once again say subscribe to caitlin's patreon Make sure to tune into anything that Evan puts out. And, um, you know, hopefully one day you get to see Evan coaching some big team with a big name. And hopefully I ride his coattails. He brings me on as some sort of consultant. I'm still waiting on the um, three-on-three invite to to coach your team. If you're here, you're on the team. I hope, like, you're not coaching. You're playing. No, my niece. I offered to coach it, and he didn't remotely take me up on it. I even sent him a clip of a play from three-on-three three games while it. I was fired and didn't care. <laughs> what do you mean I didn't care? I showed that to Lewis, and he was extremely excited, although we were on different teams. Um, well, you didn't relay that information to me. I'm doing it now. <laughs> any, anyway, <laughs> it's like three months too late. That's fine. Anyway, um, listeners, I hope you enjoyed this. Viewers, I hope you enjoyed this. Um, there's nothing better than, in my opinion, seeing Caitlin ask Evan and I independently on separate podcasts, like, hey, envision this, and then you can watch our brains break a little bit. Um, a, hum- a humbling experience for both of us, I'm certain. Um, or an indictment of my explanation, one or the other. I would, I would go with the former. Regardless, um, thank you to everybody for tuning in. I so appreciate you. If you're looking for names uh, for the assistant coach that uh, will be joining the new head coach, 
If you're looking for names, that's not what this podcast was about. I asked Amir Johnson to talk to me. We'll see if he does it. I'll ask him about coaching in the NBA from his point of view, if that does happen. We'll see. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Much love. Okay. Bye-bye.